0: Hello, hello, everyone. This is Erin from bloomingwellness.com. And it's another episode of Causes or Cures. So, you know, we're in 2020. Obviously, the major health issue on everybody's mind is COVID-19, the pandemic, what's going to happen. Um, and, and as you know, I, I often ask people to message me and send me ideas this podcast. This podcast is something I do right from my apartment in New York City, but I always want to talk about things that you're interested in and also try to bring in an expert or a doctor or a stakeholder um, to talk about the topic on the show. So someone recently wrote me and said, can you do a podcast on COVID-19 and strokes? And this is because we're hearing a lot about strokes in COVID-19 patients, a lot of times in younger patients, people who were otherwise healthy, had no underlying conditions. So what's going on there? Because that's scary. That's scary for a lot of people. So luckily, um, I was able to get Dr. Ricardo Jose, who is a respiratory doctor in the UK, in London. He... um, Respiratory, meaning he works with the lungs, he deals with infections in the lungs, and he's very interested in how inflammation, inflammation in the lungs, can lead to coagulation or clotting, 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 those things that can block vessels and lead to strokes. So he recently published an article in The Lancet, which most of you know is a really good medical journal, called COVID-19 Cytokine Storm the interplay between inflammation and coagulation. So he's going to explain what that cytokine storm means, and he's going to explain it on a level that everybody can understand, so you don't have to be a doctor or healthcare worker to get it. And he's going to talk about how that cytokine storm, all that inflammation can lead to coagulation and clotting in people. And he's going to talk about who needs to worry about that, what hospitals and doctors are doing to treat that, what the latest evidence suggests that they should do, things to keep in mind, you know, if, if your loved ones end up in the hospital, right? And just so you know a little bit more about Dr. Ricardo Jose, he has over 90 publications. Um, most of them deal with lung infections and the systemic effects that they create throughout the body. He's written quite a few articles on COVID 19. Um, so, uh, he's a great source on this topic. He's an expert, so I'm really happy to have him and hopefully you guys will learn something and yeah, well, here we go. Let's just put him on the line. So, so thanks for doing this. And I read your, um, article, you've written a couple articles in the Lancet that's, Right. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Um, so do you mind just like just saying a quick intro, like who you are, what you do?
1: Okay. So um, I'm Ricardo Jose. I'm a, a consultant respiratory physician here in the UK in London. And um, I work in the respiratory infection department, also known as host defense uh, department at the Royal Brompton Hospital. And um, I'm an honorary associate professor at uh, University College London in the respiratory section and the department's uh, Center for Inflammation and Tissue Repair. And um, I've got an interest in respiratory infection and also in the interaction between coagulation and inflammation pathways in host defense.
0: Okay. Oh, so outside of COVID-19, you've been interested in that? Uh,
1: Correct. So so more actually in the context of community-acquired pneumonia, um, Related to mainly bacterial infection. Um, but uh, as you know, with SARS CoV 2, there's been, with this coronavirus infection, uh, a lot of interest in yeah. um, coagulation and inflammation due to the cytokine storms. So um, obviously, my, my previous interest has um, fallen in quite nicely into. What's happening now with um, COVID nineteen?
0: Right, and I'm, this must be a really busy time for you right now. Um,
1: uh, well, it, fortunately for us, it's been a, 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 a It's much better now than we were at our peak of the first phase or first wave of um, this infection.
0: Oh, oh well, that's good. Um, and, just, and you're in right in London.
1: Uh, correct, correct.
0: Okay, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a lot better here in New York City, too. It's just it, um, other parts of the country now are really getting hit. Um, I guess to start, um, so my audience, like I mentioned, they, they no, not everyone necessarily has a, a strong scientific background, um, but could you explain what the cytokine storm is re- as it relates to COVID-19?
1: Yeah, so um, in... Um, all infections um, and now particularly with COVID-19 what we see is that once the um, virus is recognized by the the body um, as uh, being foreign and being a pathogen it um, results in inflammation and um, that inflammation brings in these proteins which we call cytokines which will direct the uh, immune cells to the site of infection which then uh, allows those cells to control the infection kill the, the virus or the bacteria and then lead to a process of resolution of that inflammation where these cells then um, Will go away or will be mopped up by the body. The the, the issue is that in some people Uh, this uh, inflammatory response becomes exaggerated. So the cell types that will release these uh, proteins or cytokines uh, will release an abundant uh, number of them and also fail to resolve that inflammation. So once those immune cells have arrived at the site of infection, uh, they, they don't signal to allow those cells to stop coming in So you have this um, vicious cycle of uh, high levels of inflammation leading to these Immune cells being recruited and although we need the immune cells to come into the site of infection to control it uh, One of the downsides especially in delicate tissues and organs such as the lungs is that they they result in bystander tissue damage so um, whilst they are there to help uh, control the infection they are themselves releasing other mediators that are causing damage to the lung.
0: So it's just this really nasty domino effect that won't turn off, uh, so to speak.
1: That's that's right.
0: Um, can you talk, so there's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, strokes um, and uh, happening in, in, in not, not, old, not just older people, younger people. So can you talk a little bit about how this cytokine storm or all of this inflammation ties into coagulation or or clotting, creating clots?
1: Yeah, no problem. So um, with the infection and the induction of the inflammatory process where these immune cells are are recruited to the sites of infection, what these uh, cytokines or proteins do is they also Uh, Activate the coagulation system in the body and um, coagulation is actually evolutionary being very important for uh, The body and various organisms that have coagulation pathways to control infection locally. So although they cannot um, kill bacteria or viruses like immune cells the coagulation system can create these little clots which can locally um Put the pathogen into a compartment. Um, so, so that that's how we've evolutionally evolved, to have coagulation as part of our uh, defense mechanisms to fight pathogens. And um, once you activate the coagulation cascade, you then start to have these coagulation proteins producing uh, thrombin. And what thrombin then does is it results in the formation of a clot uh, through the production of fibrinogen. So these clots uh, can happen at the site of the inflammation. But when you get inflammation that is more generalized and exaggerated throughout the body, um, you get clots at the various organs. So a lot of them can be microthrombi or... So so very uh, minute uh, clots within the circulation of the organs. Or you can get uh, larger clots, which we call um, uh, macrothrombi. And in the lungs, um, microthrombi will lead to uh, poor perfusion. So the blood supply going to the lungs is no longer um, adequate because those small little blood vessels have been blocked by clots. And therefore, you do not get adequate exchange of, of oxygen going from the lungs into, into the blood. If it happens in the kidneys, you start getting um, problems with the function of the kidney and kidney failure. And if you've got these clots happening in the brain, um, you can have strokes, or more subtle, uh, we do see a lot of confusion in patients um, who have uh, suffered from severe COVID 19. And a lot of that could be related to microthrombi within the brain circulation, um, and then you've got um, cardiac circulation, where if the blood vessels to the heart get blocked with small thrombi, you can also get small um, heart attacks. Um,
0: and we have, uh, in a, well, we have our clotting system, which has um, benefits, and then we have a anti-clotting system too, right? Anti-thrombin three and, and some other factors.
1: Correct. So, yeah.
0: But that doesn't seem to be, or that, that loses control on, in, in the situation?
1: Correct. So, so, so in our normal state, in homeostasis, we have um, activation of coagulation pathways, and then we've got what we call the endogenous anticoagulants, which are the proteins in our body, which keep everything in, in balance and try and to prevent people from Uh, having an overactive clotting system and in the same way when those proteins are expressed at higher levels to stop people from bleeding you will then activate procoagulant pathways and normally uh, everything is kept in check but when you have um, high levels of inflammation with infections such as that seen with COVID-19 or even with bacterial infection and uh, bacterial sepsis what tends to happen is that the inflammation results in the activation of the coagulation pathways, and it suppresses the endogenous anticoagulants. So for example, you get less levels of antithrombin 3 uh, being produced, you get less levels of activated protein C, and you also get down regulation of what we call the fibrinolytic pathways, which are um, endogenous pathways within the body that result in clots being broken down, and also you can imagine that when you have a lot of clotting going on due to the infection, uh, um, that these proteins, which most of them are produced in, in the liver or within the, um, the blood cells in the uh, within the endothelial cells in the blood vessels, is that um, they start to get consumed, uh, and the production does not keep up with the demand.
0: Um, yeah. Okay. That was a great explanation. Thank you. I, and, and so I think, you know, I have a question of the, I guess this, dif- this disseminated in- uh, intravascular coagulation, which you can, you see like in septic patients, it can happen a lot with right with severe infections. Um, but I also read, and I, I think I read it in, in your paper as well, that there might be uh, coexisting, um, uh, deep venous thrombi which is a different mechanism? Is that wrong?
1: Well, uh, no, the, the, the mechanism comes about um, in, in a similar way. Um, but in this case, with a deep vein thrombosis, um, this is more due to systemic inflammation rather than just inflammation within the lungs. Now, there are various reasons why people get a deep vein thrombosis. For example, just Being ill in hospital and immobile will increase the risk. There are other factors, for example, like obesity, which increased risk for deep vein thrombosis. And we know that's also been shown now to be probably an an increased risk for acquiring coronavirus. And then we've got the exaggerated inflammatory response. Um, So we do find that patients are getting lots of uh, deep vein thrombosis, lots of pulmonary emboli um, and and clots. In, in other organs as well with COVID-19. Now, it's not to say that we don't get it with other infections, and, and we do, and we do see it with sepsis, we do see it with community-acquired pneumonia, um, but it just seems to be a little bit more prominent with um, COVID-19. And um, we still need a lot of studies to to come out and be published and to look at this in more detail, because uh, my personal um observation as well, which needs to be kept in mind, is that we do see more of it because we are looking in more detail for these clots in patients who are hospitalized with COVID-19. Uh, two reasons. One, um, it's been notified, uh, you know, been seen by the medical community uh, and scientific community that, you know, there's this exaggerated uh, procoagulant response leading to these clots and uh, even when clinicians are administering anticoagulants such as heparin to patients we're still seeing patients uh, developing clots so uh, we have um, become really tuned to it and have a high index of suspicion for clots so we will arrange ultrasounds more frequently or scan the chests of patients uh, when they are hypoxic, to look for clots. Uh, whilst in the other settings of sepsis and pneumonia, we would probably have a lower thresh, uh, sorry, a higher threshold for doing those um, investigations, and therefore maybe under-reporting in that scenario. And because we in a pandemic, and suddenly all our patients in hospital have COVID-19, um, and we're seeing this high incidence of um, clots. It, it, it really appears like it's, it's it's a very big issue, which, which it is. But I think um, we, we do need more data before right. we say that, it, you know, it, it's a much bigger problem than um, with the other sources of severe sepsis.
0: Um, the one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I'm not sure if you have enough um, data to comment on this, but um, I've been reading a lot in the newspapers here about cases um, were younger people who were at home and they um recovered they had mild symptoms from covid-19 um but then they developed stroke symptoms like they couldn't speak uh that got me thinking about well how severe does the infection really have to be for this type of uh clotting to occur does that make sense
1: yeah it does um so the there's, there's not a lot of data for patients who are at um, home with COVID-19 su- uh, symptoms because they, they're not having their coagulation profile right. measured. Um, it's only those who are coming into hospital. But there is one study that I'm aware of that looked at mild to moderate COVID-19 rather than just severe COVID-19, and they found that uh, approximately Patients with mild to moderate COVID nineteen had um, markers of uh, activation of the coagulation system, so they described it as uh, non overt disseminated intravascular coagulation or DIC. So, so yes, it is um, the case that people can be at home with mild symptoms and have the Inflammation inducer coagulation response and together with other factors such as um, You know being ill in bed maybe not keeping themselves well hydrated that you end up exacerbating or increasing your risk of um, developing clots and um, if those clots happen in the brain circulation which is not common at you know, it's really right. not as common as deep vein thrombosis or the pulmonary emboli that occur from that. Um, it is plausible that it could happen. So, we know that patients who are asymptomatic, um, or have very mild symptoms of COVID 19 can have signs of inflammation in the lungs uh, on CT scans. So, the, the inflammation is, um, is there.
0: Um, and I just, it, you said 80% had was that? Or was it 18 percent?
1: 80, 80, okay. 80, 80. So so the majority.
0: Um, yeah, I just found that. And I read that the strokes can be um, were in younger patients um, at, at, or that that's what they were seeing in the hospitals. But I guess when people or if people had a stroke when they were at home and then went to the hospital, um that's that's frightening to me. But,
1: um, it, it, it is frightening. I mean, I'm not I'm not aware of that data, and I certainly haven't seen uh, people in in that scenario. Um, yeah. But um, you know, it, it does happen, and it is plausible, and um, and and that leads us to having to, you know, to do more community studies, so we know the extent of. Um, the pathogenesis, or how COVID nineteen is causing disease, even in people who are not uh, requiring hospitalization.
0: Right, right. Um, I, just to, on a, a final kind of question, um, I just wanted to ask you about treatment. Um, if someone in the hospital um, has this sort of, you know, cytokine storm, and then the the coagulation, all the clots, what in your opinion, or what is the general consensus in terms of how to go about treating someone like that?
1: Well, currently, the, you know, evidence is lacking for treatment in COVID-19, as you're aware. Um, but uh, in terms of the coagulation, it's be- although there's no specific um, uh, sort of national guidance on this, many local hospitals have come up with their own uh, guideline or policy to the management of COVID-19 um, procoagulant states and uh, certainly I think everyone recognizes that if you are in hospital with COVID-19 that you at least at a minimum need to be on a prophylactic dose of um, which is a preventative dose of uh, anticoagulant such as heparin which is the most widely used anticoagulant in this scenario um Many people advocate, particularly if the D-dimer level, so these are um, levels of a biomarker right. of activation of coagulation system, because when you break down a clot, that clot breaks down into this product called D-dimer. And if you, break, if you have a lot of clot, you're certainly breaking it down, so you're going to have very high levels of, of D-dimer. And people will uh, advocate if your D-dimer levels are are raised, particularly if they're markedly raised, as we've seen some people with COVID-19, that they should be on treatment dose um, anticoagulation. And there are studies going on in the UK and elsewhere in the the US and other places in Europe looking at this difference between uh, preventative dose and treatment dose of heparin or low molecular weight heparin. you know, we've got the oral anticoagulants, which uh, I mentioned in the right. article in Lancet Respiratory Medicine, but um, we we still need research into those antithrombin or anti-factor 10a uh, because they would be useful, for example, in people who are at home um, because mm-hmm. they do not require any monitoring or injections, uh, but we just don't have the data uh, right. to, to recommend the their use and there's also consideration that if you're using certain antivirals that um, you may start to get um, Side effects and interactions. So so currently we don't have the data for that Then um, a lot of people are also proposing a more personalized approach in terms of looking at each patient individually with the um, D-dimer levels and other markers of um, activation of coagulation and adjusting the doses of heparin according to that and then i i think we need more research as well into other anticoagulants for example uh anti-thrombin 3 uh, um, anti-activated protein c these are um, endogenous anticoagulants which can be administered pharmacologically as well and because we know that With intense inflammation, you'll have low levels of these endogenous anticoagulants. So maybe supplementing them with um, a pharmacological agent uh, might help. But um, I think the community is a bit reluctant at the moment in undergoing some of these studies because when these agents were trialed in sepsis, um, mainly from bacterial pneumonia, Um, they didn't show very promising results and, um, there's always the concern that anticoagulation can result in a higher bleeding risk and therefore causing some degree of harm. Um, so certainly we, I think we just need more, more studies in this area because we haven't seen many cases of people bleeding on anticoagulants with, um, with COVID-19. And then I think just to, yeah, uh, sorry, just to mention, as you asked about the the cytokine storm and um, so uh, very, uh, it hasn't been published yet, but uh, it is, the the literature is available uh, as a preprint is the data from the recovery trial, which was done here in the UK and has shown that um, uh, a, a lower dose of dexamethasone, which is a corticosteroid. In patients who require um, uh, oxygen and patients who require mechanical ventilation, such as those with severe COVID on an intensive care unit, that you know there, there is a reduction in mortality with the, with this agent. And certainly, lots of people have advocated in those with a true cytokine storm with very high levels of inflammation um, in trying to salvage them with um, the use of other anticytokine therapies, such as targeting specific cytokines, such as interleukin-1 and interleukin-6, um, and that may, may, may be promising as well. And then we've got the data from the United States with the antiviral remdesivir, which has been shown to um, reduce the duration of the illness. So we always have to think about combining agents. And uh, if you combined an antiviral uh, together with an anti-inflammatory agent, uh, potentially we could be in a situation where our outcomes can be can be improved.
0: Um, wow, it sounds like, <laughs> I mean, at least there's a lot of research going on, uh, it, it's, it's, um, uh obviously a new territory I guess to enclose I want to thank you so much for your insight and your time um it's very informative I guess uh how do you think um this is going to play out over the next year or two um whether you're talking about the UK the United States I think I, I think that's what a lot of people are, are kind of really wondering like uh in terms of are we going to have to are we going to see more waves? Are, are we ever going to go back to normal? Are we all going to have to wear face masks? Um,
1: well, I mean, that, I think that's that's quite a difficult question to answer because um, no is. one knows what, <laughs> what, the, what the future entails. Um, no one can, you know, no one predicted. Um, I know what's going to happen. Well, you know, people did predict what was going to happen because you know, for the last ten years, and I remember as a medical student, our virologist telling us about uh, the viral pandemics and that we would do one very soon. Um, Now, this was a long time ago, but...
0: um, That's what I did in public health. I did a project on emerging infectious diseases. So, um, you know, all the factors leading to an emerging infectious disease. And um, I was like, yeah, it was all there. um, But people just, you know, people ignore things unless they're affecting you Person. Correct.
1: Person. Correct. So now that we've been hit by this, we we certainly more aware, um, and you know there will be more viral pandemics in the yeah. future, and we we just have to to be prepared. And um, I think the fact that this this novel coronavirus has um, spread beyond uh, Asia into all these other countries and now is global. Um, I think the global community is very much aware of the future regarding viral pandemics. And um, regarding SARS, you know, COVID-19, we're not out of it, and I don't think we'll be out of it for some time. It's still prevalent in all the communities. Um, South America and, um, you know, Africa are seeing a rise in cases. Uh, Within uh, Europe, although the first wave has ended, cases are still prevalent and in some countries starting to rise again. And then, you know, we have the fact that we do have to ease our lockdowns because of um, the impact, which is enormous that this is having on economy and uh, on the livelihoods of many people, um, makes it difficult in trying to, from a public health perspective, contain and control the disease um, effectively right. so so it will it, it will it will be present amongst us hopefully at um, much lower levels than in the first wave which is now uh, easing off and that hospitals can um, can manage with it but certainly i think people have to be very uh, aware of it and um, protect themselves as as much as is possible until it all uh, dies down, and then that could be likely another um, eighteen months. I, 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 would reckon, but um, right. it's nowhere written in stone because no one will uh, really know what's, what's, what's coming up.
0: Right. I mean, again, there's a chance they might have a vaccine in oh, about three months. Um, maybe. I, I know.
1: I... Uh, I think. I think. I think that's being quite. Ho- that's that's really being hopeful. <laughs> We you know, the 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 scientific community is working really hard and um clinical trials are undergoing yeah. on healthy volunteers. It will you know, there are plans to start very soon with um moving beyond healthy volunteers uh with vaccine trials, but it, it will take time before we know um what the efficacy of the vaccine is and you know, although we are very hopeful for a, COVID, a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine um, being effective. When we look at other viruses in the past, you know, it's, it's taken a long time to achieve a vaccine which uh, is effective. So although the world is throwing a lot of money and resources and effort into developing a vaccine, I think uh, having a, a, a safe available vaccine in three months is too optimistic. And I think we're looking more at twelve to eighteen months.
0: I'm usually never called optimistic, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, I guess I'm trying to be just because uh, there's so much uncertainty, and people just do not do well with uncertainty. Um, but I, I, I want to uh, thank you for your time. And I think it's uh, you made a great point in terms of because we're so interconnected now as as countries, and just how are we going to stop the next one? You know, what are we going to do differently? Um, And sure, if we see an outbreak in another country or even in our own country, like, uh, maybe we'll have a better response next time around.
1: I think so. I think um, once this event is over, there'll be a lot of looking back retrospectively and and, and analyzing what was done by each country and um, figure out how we can do it best next time around. So... Uh, I I think we will be better prepared for, um, for sure for, for, for the future.
0: Let's, let's hope so. Um, anyways, thank you so much and thank you for all the hard work you're doing and all in, uh, all of the, uh, studies you're putting out there and that kind of thing. So, um, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Thank you very much. It's a, it's a very, it's an interesting topic, this interplay between coagulation and, uh,
0: yeah. Inflammation
1: and um, and hopefully, you know, you we'll up a lot start having people. some treatments.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. We could just we'll just hope for that. Um, but thanks again and enjoy. Uh, I don't know what time it is in London right now because obviously I'm not good with my laptop. Says nine eighteen a.m., but I know that's wrong. So yeah, no, it's it's
1: 17 uh, seventeen eighteen. Oh, fine.
0: Okay. But five uh, no,
1: thank, thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you it's, it's a pleasure
0: absolutely have a good day bye bye
1: take care bye
0: alright guys thank you for listening hopefully everybody learned something I know I learned a lot um, again if you have any recommendations for podcast topics just message me find me I have a Facebook wellness group you can tell me in there you can find me on Instagram Dr. Aaron Stare Um, Of course, you can write me through my website, bloomingwellness.com. Don't forget to check out some of the other Causes or Cures podcast episodes. Subscribe if you want. Um, I do these right from my uh, apartment in New York City, so it's about as organic and natural as it gets. Um, And we do the best we can with uh, sound and making it flow okay. Uh, Other than that, you know I wrote a parody. On the wellness industry, the sleazy side of the wellness industry, Yours in Wellness, Crystal Healing, Letters from the Wellness Industry. It's available as an ebook and an audiobook on Amazon. The audiobook is great. You really should listen to it. I didn't narrate it. Um, the person who did has a much better voice than me. So, um, hope you guys check that out. Take care. Take care of each other. Stay curious. Bye.